0: Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Stephanie Murray, author of the Politico Massachusetts Playbook.
1: And I am Jennifer Smith, resident of my house, which is now my Dorchester bunker. As you'll hear from this recording, we are coming to you not from our beloved podcast bunker, but our respective pods, like we're in Love is Blind Coronavirus Edition. The grip of this disease has gotten even stronger since our last episode, and since then, the governor has recommended that folks work from home. There's no shelter-in-place order right now, and he says there won't be one, but we are sticking to remote recordings, and we hope to be back face-to-face sometime in the not-too-distant future. Stephanie, how's your bunker, and how's your social distancing going?
0: Oh, Jen, you know, I wish we didn't have to do this, but I think it's important that we all do our part to social distance. So hopefully, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, um, we can take you away from your your internal monologue and your thoughts for a little while, distract you from, I don't know, flipping between cable news stations. That's what I've been doing. But it's just so serious. I, you know, I drove past Trader Joe's the other day and people were lined up to get in the store. Uh, There were people with masks. It's just like this really bizarre, serious feeling dystopian time in our state in our country i mean how's your how's your bunker jen
1: yeah, my bunker is fine. Um everyone in it is is mostly fine. I think I I do agree with you on on sort of the the dystopian feeling though because, you know, you're allowed to go out and grab some stuff from the grocery store, or the local pharmacy, but what has been so odd for me is that I can't really get my head around how much of it is kind of this snowballing panic response that's leading people to, you know, hoard gallons of milk for some reason. It's like, you know, you're kind of watching how people respond to um, to kind of all-purpose disaster. It's so interesting
0: that you say that, because I think that in the last week or so, as this virus became more serious to the average person, the way people were talking about it reminded me of the way people talk about like even like a terror attack or something like that. I mean, at first people were saying, you know, we can't live in fear. We have to live our lives. And that obviously isn't the right response. You have to social distance. Uh, So I think that people were kind of lacking like the experience to respond to something like this. And we're kind of going back to like their old disaster response methods, like going to the store and stocking up like it's a hurricane or a power outage or a snowstorm Mm -hmm. or something like that. But I think that that curve is kind of starting to turn and people are responding more appropriately. To the coronavirus pandemic. And a lot of that has been bars and restaurants are closed now. That was something that the state decided because folks weren't really heeding voluntary social distancing. So uh, restaurants and bars are going to be takeout and delivery only until April 5th for now, which is a huge hit to the businesses and to the workers, especially who rely on tips.
1: Yeah. And then, of course, uh, you know, to that point, a lot of it is the government. Basically, they're asking or telling businesses that uh, they just kind of need to need to shut down. It's too much of a risk. You can't really trust people not to congregate if there's a place to congregate. And to that point, all private and public Massachusetts schools are now closed until April 7th. So uh, in cities like Boston, they're basically undertaking efforts to provide lunches and education materials that parents can pick up if they're now essentially forced to do homeschooling. And then uh, statewide gatherings of 25 people plus are now banned, except, as we noted, for grocery stores and pharmacies. And as I noted earlier, Governor Baker says the state is not planning a shelter-in-place order, though, let me tell you, I've got a brother out in California, and he's been on shelter-in-place for two days now, so it is, it is interesting, kind of, the, the, the little pockets of the country that are increasingly getting stricter with their limitations.
0: That's right. In New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio was talking about doing a shelter in place as well, but he said that it's up to the state to decide. So he was kind of feuding with Governor Cuomo over the course of yesterday. Uh, This is just really kind of exposing a lot of rifts in our government and society even. Um, And something I found really interesting. So last night during uh, when I was watching the election results come in, folks were kind of Saying Bernie Sanders, now that he's up against kind of an insurmountable delegate lead that Joe Biden has, the more that he stays in and continues to run, people will be going to the polls, which might be a public health risk for people to be going and using the pens Mm -hmm. and using up hand sanitizer and wipes when they could just be staying home. So, I mean, there's just no roadmap for how this is going to impact the primary and then the general election as well. But it's just it's just so it's crazy. It really is making the case for mail in ballots, isn't it? Yeah, but you also have to be careful not to lick the envelope. In Washington State, that's the Secretary right. of State was Our asking mail. everyone not to lick their envelopes, and they were opening everything with gloves in case cause there's just so much uh. we don't know about the virus and how long it lives on surfaces.
1: Yeah, that's true. And so, uh, can we talk about the very strange roller coaster of what's happened in the last uh, 10 minutes of this Wednesday? This is something you'll only
0: know if you are extremely online uh, because it all happened so quickly. So basically Bernie Sanders pulled uh, his digital ads off of Facebook. He pulled away his digital ad spending and Axios ran a story that he was dropping out of the race. And then they changed the story that he was just dropping his ads off of Facebook. But that was, uh, it was too late before people just started running with it and aggregating it and saying that Bernie Sanders had dropped out. Uh, when in fact he hadn't. Uh, his campaign said earlier today that he was going to be assessing the path forward, which is usually kind of code for we're deciding whether to drop out or not. But somebody absolutely jumped the gun, and then uh. hundreds of other people also jumped the gun.
1: It's true. It's it's crazy. So I really enjoyed that. There were a bunch of different versions of the story. There were journalists dunking on other journalists on Twitter for posting things too quickly. Just a really, really like like you know, I would say compared to a global pandemic, like low stakes Twitter chaos um, (laughs) that like briefly took me out of everything. Um, But quite aside from that, why are we here today? So today we've got Boston City Councilor
0: Michelle Wu who's going to talk to us about coronavirus impacts in Boston from local business to transportation, the city council itself. And then we have uh, State Rep. John Santiago, who's also an emergency room doctor, who's going to talk to us all about how state government is operating during this pandemic and what he's seeing on the ground at the hospital. Let's get into it. As the number of coronavirus cases in the state and city tick up every day, people of all professions are adapting to working in a new environment. That involves a lot of isolation, but for governors, mayors and city councilors, connection and conversation is still important. And even life-saving as new questions about the virus and safety arise every day. The Boston City Council is holding meetings remotely and Councilor Michelle Wu is connecting community members to professionals via Q&As on social media, getting a sense of what public concerns are as well as what the experts have to say. She's here with us today to share some of those insights and update us on how the city of Boston is handling the outbreak so far. Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's just start off. Can you just tell us kind of how, where things stand with you, what the atmosphere is like among the City Council and just the city itself?
2: Yeah, in less than an hour, we will be holding our first virtual Boston City Council meeting. So we did a test run yesterday with all the split screens of all the different councilors and you know, it's I think after Wednesday, after today, when we have that meeting, things will move to a new normal. But it's been a lot of trying to scramble and check on seniors in our districts and reschedule meetings virtually or decide what needs to what actually needs to be rescheduled. And people are, are um, trying to do our best to make sure we're getting information out there as fast as we can. So how are you all modifying your work habits? Uh, how's the city
1: council running right now?
2: The council has shut down completely in terms of the facilities and physical spaces. So um, today's meeting will be entirely online, entirely virtual. So all counselors will be on a laptop or a phone, tablet, and, um, you know, practicing raising our hands through the little buttons on the, in, the, in your laptop, etc. It, it's going to be a wild experience. Um, but all of our staff are working from home. Folks are forwarding phone calls and voicemails over to their uh, personal phones, and we're trying to do the best we can to keep going um, while also modeling social distancing.
0: Uh, so when you're modeling social distancing, do you feel like you're less connected to your constituents? I know you've been doing stuff on social media and online, but how do you reach people that aren't very online who are often kind of the most at risk of this virus?
2: Yeah, there's, there's certainly... Something that is missing when you move to this face to face through the screen as opposed to in a room altogether. And many of the constituents that we're trying to reach, I think, aren't even sure how serious this is, how long this will last. So there's a baseline of just trying to get people's um, sort of medical understanding up to date, and then from there figuring out how we continue to build community. So a lot of folks are doing, phone calls to one-on-one to seniors in their district Uh, we're trying to do as many teletown halls and facebook lives and online broadcasts as possible while constantly reminding people even though you're physically distancing yourself from others make sure that you're still coming together with the people who are in your lives and checking on everyone and of these approaches
1: that you've taken so far, like the virtual town halls and the Twitter Q and As, uh, what's the response been? Um, do you do you think that one approach has been more effective than another in kind of communicating both that basic information but also sort of providing the comforting function?
2: Yeah, I don't think everyone needs. of the answers right now. And I think sometimes in government, there's this fear of, well, we better not say something until it's totally sure or let's not share even how we're thinking about how we'll get to the right decision. But in this case, when there is so much up in the air, people's lives and routines are totally changed. The more than we can share, even just about what we're thinking and what policies we need to finalize or or, um, be in discussion about, people are taking comfort in the fact that they know we're having the right conversations. And so I've been taking lots of recommendations and and requests for what types of topics folks are interested in learning more about. We do a quick 20 to 30 minute Q&A on Facebook Live so people can ask questions live or send them ahead of time. And then everything gets posted online afterwards so you can go back and and watch it anytime anytime you have the time.
0: One of the big questions, it seems to me like that's up in the air, is whether the city of Boston or even the entire state will become more restricted. You know, the big rumor has been that Massachusetts is going to order a shelter in place, which Governor Baker has said will not happen repeatedly. But do you think that
2: something like that should happen,
0: at least in Boston?
2: You know, we are operating from a place where we don't have all the data. So it's it's frightening to start there, that we don't actually know how widespread the virus is in the community. What we do know is that from the limited testing that has been done, and again, this is because of federal policy and the Trump administration really being slow to get started on on getting testing out there. Um, but anyway, the numbers that we do have show that Massachusetts, as it currently stands, is the third highest state when it comes to cases per population. So we should be taking as many precautions as we can in this moment. Early action always saves lives down the line when it comes to preserving our hospital capacity. And we are a smaller sort of more condensed state and city and we should be talking about those measures that will try to keep people apart now because other in other locations The case count isn't as high yet and there's also much more physical distance even between homes and and houses and um, our unique circumstances are that when the spread does start to pick up, it could spread quite quickly. So what is it going
1: to take kind of in your view to get people to to process the idea of social distancing? Um, Of course, we all saw the photos of the bars in Southie over the weekend um, and then all of the closures, because uh, as I think it was Senator uh, Nick Collins was pointing out, clearly voluntary social distancing didn't work. So we've got to just shut it down to take that option away from people. What's
2: going on? I think there's a little bit that was just misinformation in that people are processing the fact that COVID-19 hits older adults, seniors, much more seriously than it does younger adults and kids. And those are averages. So there certainly are young people and kids who have been hospitalized. And, and um, it's not true across the board that you're sort of super immune if, if you're young. But that general sense that okay we're okay because we're in our 30s or 20s um, it doesn't stop there because even if you are not going to end up in the hospital you might be contagious before you even have any symptoms at all and that means you could pass it on to someone else who could then pass it on to someone else who could pass it on to a senior or someone who will have a much more a much harder time uh, and need and need hospitalization so i think getting folks to think about the societal impacts is important But it's also about economic policy that our small businesses have been hit so hard. I mean, I'm getting messages from restaurants and bars, businesses down 85 percent businesses. You know, we're not sure we can survive this hourly wage workers who can't put food on the table right now. And if you don't provide some guarantee that there will be economic support down the line or ideally as soon as possible, businesses are in that really hard situation of do I stay open and risk? contain, you know, spreading this? Or do I do what I feel like I have to do to be able to pay my workers and survive?
0: So what happens to restaurants and bars now that say that, you know, they feel like workers rely on tips, the bars and restaurants feel like the bottom is going to come out of their business within the next two or three weeks? I mean, what can the city do to ease this? I mean, it seems like we're likely to be social distancing for a lot longer than two weeks right now.
2: Yeah, the latest that I've heard from epidemiologists and public public health experts is that it is likely to be at least two months, right? So this is more about months than weeks. In terms of the, the businesses, we need some federal-level stimulus package. This is going to be devastating for the economy and have far longer impacts uh, in, in people's ability to pay rent and put food on the table. And it's totally shifting which businesses are even... Um, in existence and and how long they can survive at the city level what we could do is to take measures to try to ease that in the short term right so the city could defer collection of property taxes that would give property owners a little bit more flexibility and liquidity when their tenants aren't able to pay the rent right so if you own a, a building that has a restaurant on the first floor and that restaurant is making no money right now if you don't have to pay your property taxes, at least until next year or whenever it is down the line, you're better able to absorb the impact of that restaurant and, and um, what they've suffered. And I think we need to be talking about the same types of economic measures for small businesses as we are for residents, right? We know that people are going to need uh, a moratorium on evictions. At some point, talking about a moratorium on rent payments or ways to help people stay in their homes And then on the business side, similarly, thinking about utilities and um, other payments that have to happen on a regular basis, could there be more supports to not keep that stress on businesses as they're not bringing any money in the door?
1: Well, so two of the things that you just mentioned um, are very topical today. Uh, For instance, um, Rep. Ayanna Pressley and Senator um, Elizabeth Warren were among uh, a cohort of federal representatives who said there should be a moratorium on evictions? Um, you also see the idea of a universal basic income for the period uh, when the disease is is causing kind of stay in place orders. How so? How promising do those sound to you? And what else are you thinking about, um, kind of throwing your weight behind, or kind of ways to mitigate the pain that the individuals are feeling?
2: Yeah, that that is the. St- scale at which we should be thinking about this. This is not a wait and see and then we'll figure out who needs help later on down the line. We need to be planning now for what we know is going to be certain because there's a lot that we don't know about this, right? We still don't have a good handle on where exactly the cases are because there hasn't been enough testing. We don't know exactly how many people will need hospitalization in Boston all at once and therefore what we'll be able to cover in terms of the capacity that our hospitals currently have but what we do know is that businesses are already devastated workers are already beyond struggling people are are frantic about how to keep their lives going um so every little step that we could take to support that again with the city stepping back its efforts to collect property taxes and parking tickets and and other payments Um, and then even moving towards the mbta you know if the service is going to continue operating not only should we allow for social distancing we should not be collecting fares with people who can't afford to to you know even pay for food at this point um and dropping fare collection as a way to also reduce interactions between drivers and, and fellow riders
0: Speaking of the tea, I mean, you've been talking about the MBTA on social media, how they've reduced service. You've been talking to constituents who have been taking the tea. Is the reduction of service doing the right thing uh, to encourage social distancing? Or are people just closer together because there are fewer trains?
2: We saw the pictures yesterday. yesterday. Tuesday was the first day of the reduced service and the new schedule. And immediately my phone started blowing up with pictures on the blue line folks talking to me about the green line it's not everywhere right so i'm i'm hearing that the orange line has been pretty quiet but wherever there are still people that must rely on the t to get to work whether it's essential workers in our healthcare system or first responders or others whose employers aren't shutting down yet because they haven't gotten the official word from from the state and the city People are still needing to go to work to put food on the table or to help others. And if we will continue to run the T, public health has to be the, the top priority. We can't just say, okay, you know, we think there's half as many riders across the system. Therefore, we'll just go to half service. It's not true line by line, bus by bus. And then you're putting people in even more dangerous situations when you're exposing, even if it's fewer drivers, but if you're exposing them to larger crowds of people, that is exponentially greater risk.
1: Um, And uh, kind of the last thing, this is going to be an ongoing issue, obviously. Uh, So what's next? What are you keeping an eye on?
2: A lot of it now is just tracking how quickly the caseload goes up, the We're past the point of being able to stop or contain the virus and Boston is right up there in terms of cities that that will likely be hit hard because we are we already have a density of cases that's higher than most other places. The big question is going to be when it hits the peak, when the infections have gotten to the point where it is so widespread that people are going to the hospital all at the same time. Are we ready for that? And do we have the equipment for the healthcare workers? Do we have the beds and the ventilators available? We're not talking about huge numbers of the population overall. You know, the estimate is something like between 20 and 25% of people have uh, needed hospitalization in terms of confirmed cases right now. And overall, from other countries, we know that it's about 5%, I think, of folks who have it a, a really serious case of this. So 80% of the population is generally fine taking care of themselves at home. But even 5% of the population is more than the number of empty beds that we have in our ICUs and in our rapid response spaces. So that's going to be the biggest stressor on the system. And can we manage that so that people will have the care when they need it? City Councilor Michelle Wu, thank you so much
1: for joining us for the remote podcast today. Uh, We really appreciate it. Thank you. State Representative John Santiago is in the unique position of being both a legislator and physician on the front lines of a viral outbreak that requires serious governmental response and, of course, medical action and resources. He's been providing his Twitter followers with quick clips, updating them both on what's happening at the ER where he works, as well as what policies are being enacted on both the state and national levels. He joins us now to go into a bit more depth. So, Representative Dr. John Santiago, thank you for being here.
3: Thank you have having me.
1: So first and foremost, how are you doing right now?
3: <laughs> I'm doing fine. Uh, you know, I've, I've been for some reason blessed with a lot of energy. Um, you know, I, I get my hours of sleep in, I exercise regularly, try to eat well. And so but right now I mean, we're in a, a, in a trying period and we need all hands on deck and I'm here to just to perform my duty.
1: So what's the balance actually been like right now between your job as a representative and also this kind of unprecedented busy time as as someone in the medical field?
3: Let me just start off by explaining how the emergency department kind of works. So typically it's all shift work, right? So you clock in for about an eight-hour shift, either from 7 to 3, 3 to 11, or 11 to 7 a.m. And the average emergency medicine doctor works three to four shifts a week. So by all means, I mean, you know, typically about 40 hours a week, it's a demanding job as you can probably uh, imagine, particularly at places like BMC, uh, a level one trauma center, a hospital that disproportionately sees um, an underserved community. And so what I've done over the, you know, since I was elected, I've been able to scale down my number of hours in the hospital. So I work typically anywhere from one to three days a week, depending on my schedule in the state house and in the community. For example, during budget um, week, budget season, I typically spend more time in the state house. Uh, When session kind of closes down, I spend more time in the emergency department, but I like to keep um, a little bit of both. I mean, I think it keeps me aware of what's going on. It's always a reminder of what's at stake. I mean, I always say what's happening in the emergency department, what I see day in day out is an exact reflection of what's not happening in the state house. And so I like to keep both. Um, You know, the emergency department is, you know, I spent so many years training and educating myself. I'm sure you're familiar with the long haul what it takes to become a physician and, I love the job. And, you know, I'm so fortunate that the hospital where I work at is also located in the district where I represent. So I'm often seeing patients and constituents and the like and neighbors. And so it's always funny to me when, uh, you know, those patients are, will see me in a suit or something They're like, well, I, you're not a doctor today. And I'll explain to them I'm actually your state rep as well and vice versa. Um, but you know I'm doing well. Um, I'm looking I'm looking I'm hunkering down right now, practicing social distancing. And um, I'll be working again Friday, Saturday and Sunday at the hospital.
0: So what does it feel like? I mean Boston Medical Center is so busy anyways. Does it feel different in the emergency room right now with people nervous about coronavirus or is it kind of just the same pace that it always is?
3: Well, I mean it's, it's definitely not the same pace. I mean you know, before even the coronavirus hit over the last couple of years, I would say all emergency departments in Boston have grown busier in the boarding situation and boarding is, people pretty much staying in the emergency room because they can't, um, they don't have a bed upstairs yet. So people waiting to be admitted to the hospital has become increasingly uh, worse over the past couple of years. And in fact, January was the busiest month in the history of the BMC emergency, uh, emergency department. And so in that context, and the fact that, you know, the gunshots, the heart attacks, the strokes, those don't stop just because coronavirus came, right? In fact, uh, coronavirus can symptoms like flu can worsen certain medical conditions, like, you know, underlying lung disease, um, um, congestive heart failure and the like. Over the past couple of weeks, things have gotten um, significantly more challenging in the emergency department. You know, I worked a couple of weeks ago. There was talk of it. Um, as soon as Charlie Baker and Donald Trump came out with their uh, national emergencies, state emergencies, respectively, um, you could feel there was, a, you know, a bit uh, higher level of intensity. Um, people were more concerned. Make no mistake, you know, people were still, I'm excited to be there to get to work. I mean, these the people, what they see, the nurses and the doctors and the medical staff there day in, day out, um, even before the coronavirus, um, it's it's an intense place to work. And, um, you know, I would have no other kind of, you know, colleague standing beside me to work with me in such an important time right now.
1: Right. So what has this taught you, this experience um, since the outbreak, about the state of the healthcare system in Massachusetts and how that interacts with the level of transparency in the state government right now?
3: Well, I mean, the state of our healthcare system at large, I'm talking about nationally speaking, it's always, uh, I think it's always been strained and, and it's always been something that I've had a fascination with because, you know, we have just a, tor- a horrible safety net um, situation for our communities that are most underserved, right? And I think this really highlights that. I mean, I think about what's going on in Italy and France and, you know, I spent five years abroad working um, before coming back to the States. So I'm somewhat familiar with what's going on in not just the uh, you know the developed world, but the developing country as well. And you know, you know, I love this country, and I love its and I love its people and its doctors. But the healthcare system, um, you know, sure needs uh, a change of pace if we if we want to you know improve the lives of so many people. And all that the coronavirus has done right now is highlighted the deficiencies, um, and the work that we need to do.
0: So, I mean, just like kind of on a day to day basis, how should state Government, like, or at least the legislature, be functioning? I mean, so many members are over 60. Is it safe to have them go in and be in the same room voting? Are you guys looking at doing stuff virtually?
3: Yeah, so as, as you probably know, the Speaker of the House put together a working group um, consisting of a few members to really look at that process to decide how we should move forward. I mean, the Speaker and many members of the House have been very committed to making sure that we need to govern and we need to be controlled and we need to lead. And so that's been the message, and um, you know we're still having informal sessions. We had one on, on Monday. Um, we're having a couple this week. The question of uh, how do we proceed with formal sessions? Um, you're exactly right. It's probably not the best idea to have a um, hundred plus people come into a room, many of which are you know past sixty, many of which have underlying medical conditions, and have them spreading the virus amongst themselves. Furthermore, you probably, you know, you want to model, you know, um, the practices that we're speaking about, social distancing and the like. And so we're coming up with ways and having those conversations right now um, with leadership to determine how best we can govern moving forward.
1: And so there are a few different ways that, uh, that legislators are looking uh, on the national level and also on the state level um, as far as mitigating the impacts of the, of the personal damage and the small business damage that the virus is causing. Um, are there any suggestions that are seeming particularly promising for you, for instance, suspending evictions or instituting some kind of universal basic income um, increasing uh, local business supports. What are you really focused on from a legislative perspective?
3: I mean, a number of those, of those things are already on the table, right? I mean, so Governor mm-hmm. Baker um, unleashed a couple of pieces of legislation, one of which had to do with unemployment insurance, and I think that's a conversation that many members in the House are having. You know, I wrote an op-ed recently in the Boston Globe about the fact that we need to take care of our most underserved communities and vulnerable populations, and, and I would say that would include small businesses. And so there's been a lot of talk of, you know, direct payments, even at the federal level. I mean, if you look at what, you know, not just Democrats, but uh, Trump as well, they've had, you know, pretty much they've had one package come out signed by Trump, a second one that's been signed by the House of Representatives in the Senate right now, and a third one that's been proposed. And that third one, I mean, you have Democrats and Republicans, uh, many of which are advocating for um, some sort of direct payment to keep the economy going at this challenging time.
0: So I want to switch gears a little bit back to what it's like at the hospital in the ER. Um, and we're lucky to be talking to you as somebody who is a lawmaker and, switch and a doctor. Switch gears. This is what we do.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> but do you guys have enough personal protective equipment? I think we've all seen people from other hospitals, healthcare workers, even asking like their town Facebook groups for mask donations. Yeah. So do yeah. you have enough equipment? And is the coordination between the state and the federal government to get you more equipment working?
3: So two things, Uh, you know, one, so I I work as an emergency room doctor. So, you know, although I know the folks in leadership at uh, Boston Medical Center, I mean, I'm sure they're busy uh, trying to make sure that the supply chain is still there, that supplies are still available to those who need it. I know when I went into the emergency department last week, there were materials there and I felt comfortable asking for them when I needed one. Um, No doubt there there was talk of, uh, you know, if if you don't need to be using it, don't use it. Uh, Just be very judicious with your use. You know, I've received calls from uh, medical providers, friends, colleagues working at different academic and medical centers, as well as community health centers. And I just had one last line, in fact, and expressed the concern that um, they're not—they might not have enough N95 masks, the masks that you need to wear to test for and treat people with coronavirus. And that was concerning to me. I mean, they were talking about just a handful of masks, and a lot of the a lot of the articles that have been written, a lot of the conversations that have been had, have been with. These large academic medical centers um, uh, for a variety of reasons, but it's important that you know in Massachusetts, we have 55 community health centers, many of which are located in the greater Boston area, and they treat thousands of patients, many of which are underserved. And we need to make sure that they are supplied with um, the appropriate um, masks, gowns, uh, hats, and the like. And so what I can say is that there is a strategic national supply um, that the federal government has, and they should be doling it out, but it's unclear how fast they're doing that. I know that the state, um, Mayor Lou Sutter is the secretary of health has asked for a number of supplies and got about 10% of what she asked for. Um, And looking into other ways where we can kind of uh, increase the supply chain for PPE, no doubt. I mean, without PPE, you can't test for coronavirus. Without PPE, you can't treat patients with coronavirus. And so this is an important part. And and more importantly, you can't protect healthcare workers. Because once the healthcare worker, um, once that group begins to get sick, I mean, you're going to see a real decline in the ability to address the epidemic. I mean, if there are doctors and nurses there to do the job, um, then we're in some deep trouble.
1: Um, and our our last question is pretty much about how exactly the communication goes right now, is what do you want uh, listeners and people kind of out there in the world to be keeping at the forefront of their minds as we move forward in into this months-long process?
3: Well, I, I think I just want to, you know, make sure that everyone understands that Um, this is going to require a shared sacrifice. It's going to require each and every single one of us. I mean, this is not just about doctors and nurses treating patients. This is about you and I and all of us having a role in this. And so, you know, ultimately how we're going to stop this virus from spreading is by suppressing it, by practicing good social distancing. And, you know, you don't have to be a doctor or nurse to practice that. So everyone needs to be at home um, if if they can be at home. And, um, you know, washing their hands, practicing good hygiene, because that's the only way that we're going to stop this. The virus is tricky. A lot of it, a lot of people go uh, have it and are asymptomatic. There was a report that just came out of Wuhan, China, where I think something like, you know, 80 percent of the infections came from folks that were 80 um, uh, percent of people that were infected um, were infected by folks who had an undetected virus. And so, you know, watching what happened this past weekend, and that, you know, so many young people were out. As if the virus was there, I really just want to make sure that folks understand that this is important and that uh, if all you have to look is across the pond and see what's going on in Italy and the disaster and the tragedy and the chaos and the sadness that's going on there. And that could very well be us in a couple of weeks. And and this is real life and folks should be practicing good social distancing at this time.
1: Gotcha. Well, on that note, uh, Rep. John Santiago, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Stay safe out there and uh, keep us posted. I do.
0: And so that brings us to the end of the show. Instead of trivia or song singing this week, uh, we have a question for you, our listeners. In this chaotic kind of scary time, what is something that is making you smile or something that you've been kind of leaning on as you're social distancing, feeling isolated? It could be a book, a movie, a TV show, a recipe. And Jen, what's yours?
1: Oh, man. I think, honestly, I've been fully leaning into the, I don't want to say trash movie series, um, but my boyfriend had never seen the Fast and Furious series before, and so we are working on that. It is a deeply <laughs> beloved, chaotic, in a safe way kind of series, so we're slowly working our way through that. I mean, the the thing that's really getting me here is how many times Vin Diesel talks about Corona beer in this series, so it feels both topical and also entirely shallow. I respect that. I would
0: have to say mine is, um, I have to confess to our listeners that I paid $4 to rent the movie Twilight on YouTube. Uh, and then the next day I discovered that it was actually Twilight Weekend on Freeform, so I could have just watched it for free uh so if you have something that you'd like to share with us uh that we can share with all of our listeners uh i think we're all looking for things to do and watch uh you can tweet it at us you could even record a voice memo maybe we'll play it you can email it to us whatever whatever it is but that is all of our time for today so i'm stephanie murray
1: And I'm Jennifer Smith. Our producer is Libby Gormley. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review us online. And thank you all so much for listening. Stay safe and healthy out there. And we'll see you slash be in your ears next week.